another, another warm welcome from me. And my name's Charlie, and it's great to be uh, with you this morning. If you could find a Bible and turn back to uh, that passage, which Nick very dramatically read for us, just now we're going to be looking at it together. Shall I pray as we do so? Loving God, thank you so much for um, this entry, I suppose, from Luke's diary of what the apostles got up to, making their way towards Jerusalem and the conversations they had there and the people they encountered. And I pray as we look at the mission of Paul that you would speak to us, help us on our own mission. Show us something new of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our hearts. Amen. Amen. So this is um, the mission of Paul. And I wonder as we look at uh, Paul together, what you would say Paul is like if you had to describe him. If Paul was the guest preacher this morning at St. Mark's and you were having him round for lunch afterwards and you were going to sum him up, what are his characteristics and his qualities like? If you had to sum him up and describe the Apostle Paul in one word, what was he like? Anyone? Go on, shout out. Fearless, Fearless, yeah. Determined. Determined. Renegade. Renegade. Strong. Strong. What was one down here? Single-minded, yeah. What else? Brave, passionate. And blessed. Amen. Yeah, I knew uh, that uh, that's what I, uh, as I come to think about the Apostle Paul, you've said all the sort of things which I, uh, which came to my mind. If, I feel like you read about Paul and you think he must have been absolutely mental. I mean, he was intense from the moment of his kind of dramatic conversion. He spent every waking hour of his life barreling around the Mediterranean, telling anybody who would give him an audience about the Lord Jesus and preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he must have been intense And uh, so we just heard about some of that mission that he was on, and um, Paul made four great missionary journeys, and this is the third of four, the return leg of the third of four missionary journeys. It might actually help you just to flick to the back of the Bible. You can see right at the back, there's a map, and uh, you might like to just turn that up, and uh, you can see the bits we just read about. Um, So it starts off, we tore ourselves, verse 1, away from them, which was in Ephesus. Last week, if you were this, Matt Stott was talking about what Paul said to the leaders of Ephesus, which is kind of in the middle of the map there. They actually were in Miletus. Can you see Miletus underneath Ephesus in the middle? And then verse 1, it says, they put out to sea and sailed straight for Kos. Anyone been to Kos? A couple of hands here. Um, The next day went to Rhodes and then Patara. Can you see? You can follow the line. There's a dotted line. Then it goes... Verse 3, they sighted Cyprus and passed to the south of it. And there's the line. It goes underneath Cyprus, across the Mediterranean there, and they land Syria, they land at Tyre, and then there's Ptolemy, Caesarea, and then on down to Jerusalem. That's a line uh, that we've just been reading about. The The return leg of the third journey that Paul made out of four. I mean, he was, and when you look at the rest of the whole of that map, I mean, he went everywhere. He must have been intense. He was a man on a mission. But, you know, as I've been reading about this um, bit of Paul's mission, the thing that I've been struck by, the one overriding uh, and I think surprising character trait of Paul's is his humility. His humility. I wonder whether you'll agree with me. I think that um, verse 19 of our chapter is a key verse. So they arrive in Jerusalem in verse 17. They are greeted warmly. Paul went to see James and the elders in Jerusalem and the Jewish uh, Christians there. And Paul greeted them, verse 19, 
and reported in detail what he had done for God. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say uh, that Paul told them all about what the great things that he had done. He says he reported in detail what God had done through him. And I just think that's a glimpse into the humility of Paul. I remember the um, guy who used to lead a summer camp that I went on as a kid, uh, Simon, and he used to give the talks, and he was an amazing guy. And every week, what would happen at the end of it, just as we're all about to go home after the last meal, there would be a, uh, somebody would stand up and say some nice words about him, and we'd all give him a huge round of applause. And he hated it every time. You could see him just wincing, and he would just point and say all, any glory uh, he wouldn't want to keep for himself, but pointed it all away from himself and to the Lord. And Paul was like that. And they recognized that that was the right thing as well. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised Paul. Now, they didn't praise Paul, but they could have done. They could have said, Paul, you're so amazing, all this mission you've been on. We're going to make you a saint. Uh, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to build you a great cathedral in the city of London and call it St. Paul's Cathedral and have a special day to remember you in a feast. But they didn't do that. They actually gave uh, praise to God. And that was Paul. A side of his character, a little bit surprising, I think, given how intense he must have been. We don't think about it very much, but he was humble. Um, he said to the Roman church of this ministry that he had to the Gentiles, Romans 15, verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to, in leading the Gentiles to obey God. To the Ephesian church, Ephesians 3, 8, 3 verse 8, I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And so he comes to give this report of his missionary activities, and he's pointing away from himself, pointing to the Lord. He was humble. And I'd like for us to just think for uh, the few moments that we have about this subject of humility. And it's something which we pray for actually quite often in the confession. We regularly pray often uh, week by week that the Lord would help us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. The Micah challenge, Quinn, do you remember, had it tattooed on his bicep in Hebrew like a good edgy hipster worship pastor. What, O oh man, does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And I don't think it's the most popular of virtues, really. It's not something I tend to think about very much, and to be honest, I feel in some ways rather sheepish standing up here and preaching a sermon to the church about the subject of humility, because I know my own heart, I know my own sinfulness, I know that I'm much better at pretending to be humble than I am actually being humble, and I'm sure others are probably the same. We manage to convince ourselves quite frequently that we're being humble, and sometimes we think, gosh, that was humble of me. Uh, well done, me. And that's our pride, and actually, uh, we're not very good at humble uh, humility. We're proud, and, uh, but surprisingly, I think, Paul was way ahead of us on humility. Uh, not not groveling in the dirt. You know, humility, it's not that we think we're worthless. That's not humility, that's shame, and the gospel doesn't bring shame. Humility, as some wise person said, Rick Warren, I think, who said it, humility is not thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, thinking of other people more, putting other people first. And in his letters, Paul was constantly saying things like that. In humility, consider others above yourselves. That's what he told the churches to do, and we can see in this chapter, I think, that he practiced what he preached. So I've only got two headings. Paul, he was, he was humble before other people, and he was humble before God. He walked humbly 
before his God. But firstly, he, so he was humble before other people. He put other people's needs first. And I think that comes through, really, in the whole thrust of this chapter, what he was up to in the first place. What's chapter 21 of Acts all about? It's about him going to Jerusalem, isn't it? You can tell that from the sort of the titles. Uh, on to Jerusalem. Paul's arrival at Jerusalem. And he's going to incredible lengths, as we've just seen from the map, to get across the sea, to get to Jerusalem. Even though he knows he's going to be in trouble when he gets there, even though there's going to be hardships along the way, even despite everybody trying to persuade him not to go, why is he so determined to go to Jerusalem? Why, verse 14, would he not be dissuaded from going? Well, it doesn't actually say here in the chapter, but you can tell from the rest of the New Testament the reason why he's going to Jerusalem is because he's raising money for them. He's taken up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. He'd actually been all the way around these churches that he'd planted. Yes, he was encouraging the churches and teaching them, but he was also asking them for money for the poor in Jerusalem. And it's an interesting little thread that runs through a lot of Paul's letters, if you read them in the epistles, is this thread of the collection for Jerusalem that Paul is taking up. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he encourages the church to put aside a little money every week for the poor in Jerusalem when he comes for the collection just like he encouraged the Galatian church to do. Uh, in Philippians, he thanks them for taking part in this collection, the service of the Lord's poor people in Jerusalem. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which you might know is the longest, really most extended uh, chunk of teaching on the subject of financial giving in the whole of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8, and the whole context of Paul teaching them in 2 Corinthians 8 is this collection which he's going to be taking up for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, so let me read to you Romans, for example, 15. You might like to flick to it. You might stay where you are if not. Romans 15, verse 23. In the Romans, he says to the church there, I've been longing for many years to come and visit you in Rome. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you whilst passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there. Verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, in other words, Greece and Macedonia, uh, the churches there were Corinth and Philippi and Galatia, uh, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. That's why he was so steadfast in his determination to go to Jerusalem, because he was taking a collection for them. No wonder, verse 17, when they arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received them warmly, because he had a great big pot of cash for them. Actually, it says, it doesn't say in that chapter that that's what he's doing, but it does say a couple of chapters later, Acts 24, verse 17. So at the end of chapter 21, he gets arrested for uh, uh, the end of the chapter in Jerusalem, and he gets put on trial, and he eventually gets to make his defense. Verse 10 of 24, the governor motions for Paul to speak, and he replies, you know, I'll gladly make my defense. What are you doing in Jerusalem, Paul? Well, verse 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor. That's what he was doing. He was so determined to get to Jerusalem because he wanted to bless them with a financial gift. I think that's extraordinary, don't you? I mean, he could have said, well, that's not my job. I'm an apostle. I'm there to plant churches and to, to preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus. But no, instead he said, actually, these are our brothers and sisters. These are precious people for whom Christ has shed his blood. This is not okay. We've got more than we need. We must share. He was a man on a mission, but he was on a mission for, for other people, a mission to meet people's needs, both their spiritual needs and their 
physical needs, great humility. And he was humble, uh, not in just meeting people's needs. He was humble, I think you see it in the second chunk of the chapter, in the way that he approached disputes and disagreements and arguments even. And I think this is a bit I find most challenging. Because actually what happened, as soon as Paul gets to uh, Jerusalem and he presents them with this great gift, and he reports all the amazing stuff in verse 17, 18, and 19 that he's been up to, you know, all around the Mediterranean planting churches. And they say, thanks, Paul, that's great, but there's a problem. And the problem is, uh, you're not very popular here in Jerusalem, because actually the Jewish Christians here think you're, uh, you're bad news. They think that because you've gone off preaching the gospel to all of these Gentile uh, people, in other words, anyone who's not a Jew, they think by, by doing that that you're, you're undermining their traditions and their customs and their beliefs and their own Jewish way of doing things. So verse 20, heard Paul's report, they praised God, and then they said to Paul, you see, brother, thousands of Jews have become Christians here in Jerusalem, and all of them are zealous for the law. They love the Old Testament and Moses. And they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles, to turn away from Moses and abandon their customs and religion and tell them not to circumcise their children or live according to their customs. Now, had Paul been doing that? No, he hadn't. He had been teaching that those Jewish customs and circumcision, obeying the law of Moses, aren't necessary for salvation. And he had been teaching the Gentile believers who wanted to come to God, that they didn't kind of need to become Jewish first, that they didn't need to get circumcised in order to be able to have a relationship with God. But he certainly hadn't been telling the Jewish people who wanted to become Christians that they must abandon all their traditions. He didn't teach that. Even a, couple, a few chapters previously, in chapter 16, Paul even thinks it would be a good idea for Timothy to uh, be circumcised so as to um, not upset the Jewish believers who are becoming Christians. So Paul's teaching, he'd been totally misunderstood, totally misrepresented. Look down at verse 28. Fellow Israelites, they shout, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law. Well, Paul wasn't doing that. They said, verse 29, that Paul had taken a Gentile, Trophimus, uh, and assumed Paul had brought him into the temple, which would have been against their rules. Well, Paul didn't do that. They just assumed he'd done that. And so what Paul had been doing had been totally twisted and distorted, and they'd misrepresented him. Don't you hate being misrepresented? I have to confess, I don't know about you, I find it really hard when somebody says, you said this, and I think, no, I didn't. Uh, that isn't what I actually said. Um, and uh, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but I wish I had a dictaphone sometimes around my neck, recording everything that I've said, so I'm able to go back and prove when someone says, well, you said this. I think, no, I didn't. Let's go and check. And maybe if there was a video camera the whole time, and you could just go back and scroll to the place and prove that actually you were right. And it probably wouldn't be a very good thing for my marriage. And I'm sure that half of the time, I'd be wrong. I'd be proved wrong, and I'd have to eat humble pie. But Paul here was definitely right. He had been misrepresented and he could have just said to James and these elders in Jerusalem, he could have said, well, look, these idiots. It says, verse 21, they've been informed. Well, no, they haven't. They've been misinformed. I haven't been teaching that at all. They need to wind their neck in. They need to get their facts straight, get back in their box. And this is their problem. They can sort it out. But Paul, I think surprisingly, that's what I would have said if I was him. But he didn't do that. He didn't get defensive. 
he was willing to go along. So, so verse 22, James says to Paul, look, what should we do? They'll hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. And if I was Paul, I'd have said, uh, no, you do what I tell you. I'm an apostle here. Uh, you're just an elder. I outrank you. Uh, I'm going to tell you what we should do. But he didn't do that. James said to him, look, do what we tell you. And Paul says, okay, I'm willing to go along with your convoluted and expensive plan in order to keep the peace and to preserve unity in the church. And so their plan was, verse 23, there are four men with us who've made a vow. What vow have they made? Uh, They've made a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was a a vow of devotion to the Lord. It was a Jewish thing. You can read about it in Numbers uh, chapter 6. And the Nazarite who took that vow, would, uh, they would never have any razor um, touch the hair of their head. They would never drink any alcohol. And there are certain people who took the Nazarite vow in the Bible. Samson was a famous one. In fact, he didn't take the vow. His parents took it on his behalf. And his whole life was dedicated to the Lord. John the Baptist and Samuel were others who took this Nazarite vow for life. Um, and it was a Jewish thing. Sometimes you took it for life. Others, like in this instance, you could just do it for a period of time. You know, a bit like we might do Lent, you know, I'm, do, I'm having this season for, as a period of devotion to the Lord. So they said to Paul, look, why don't you, why don't you join them? It'll make you look good. Um, and you'll be able to join in with them, and they'll think, okay, he's legit. And actually, if you pay their expenses as well, that would help. Um, so do what, do what we tell you, verse 24, take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And do you know, if I, think, if I was Paul at that point, I think I would get, I said, absolutely not. That is ridiculous. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to shave my head and pay out of my own pockets for the expenses of these people making this stupid vow just because those idiots over there have misunderstood my theology. I'm not doing it. And yet Paul did, even though the Jewish believers were in the wrong, even though Paul was right, he humbled himself. How difficult is that? When you get into a dispute and a disagreement, to allow someone else to have their say and to go with what they decide, even when you know that you're right, it's so difficult to back down, especially when you know you're right and they're wrong. And... um, I find this really hard. The other evening we got into a little uh, dispute, Hannah and I, my wife Hannah and I, got into a little mini argument, I suppose it was, in the car, Wednesday or Thursday evening, and we were driving back, and uh, I was frustrated about something, and I sort of said what I thought, and then Hannah came totally straight back at me with what she thought, and I thought, oh, goodness, and then we had a little bit of a period of silence, uh, an awkward silence in the car, and I thought, oh, I've got to break the ice here, and so I said, well, now I don't know who's, who's right and who's wrong. And uh, who's in the wrong? And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because actually, Acts 21, Paul backs down even when he thinks he's right. How interesting. And so I said to Hannah, you know, I think I find this really hard. And she said, yes, you do. You're like a dog with a bone, and you won't let things go. And I thought, I'm trying to be vulnerable here, and you're rubbing it straight in my face. But she's right. I find this really, really difficult. I just don't back down. And actually, I, I found on my bishop's report, this is what it said, few years ago about, there remains in Charlie a tendency towards existential angst and frustration when his own positions are challenged, which if he's not careful would be perceived by others as defensive and entrenched. And we hope to see growth in this area. And we hope Charlie will continue to cultivate humility as a necessary 
posture in this process. And that was written to my bishop uh, by my theological college when I got ordained. And I thought, well, there you go. That's uh, something I hope that I'm not the only one who finds. Maybe it's just me. But um, I get entrenched. I don't want my position to be challenged. I don't want to back down. It's hard. If anybody uses that quote as ammunition against me, I'm going to be really unhappy. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who hates backing down, especially when they think they're right. But Paul's view was, I might be right, but if I dig my heels in here, actually could cause real division, could even split the church. And so I'm not going to cause a, a big fuss over something so trivial. Elsewhere he says, to those under the law, I became like those under the law, even though myself I'm not under the law, just so as to win those under the law. That's what he was doing here. He was willing to be flexible. He was willing to be humble. Incredible humility to allow your brother or sister to have their way even when you know you're right. He was humble before other people, but m much more importantly, and perhaps this is the root of his humility before other people, he was humble before God. And whilst he was on the way to Jerusalem to, to give these gifts to the poor, well, you've noticed as Nick read the chapter, he had all these people telling him he shouldn't go. Bad idea, trying to persuade him against going to Jerusalem. So in verse 10, you've got the prophet Agabus in Caesarea saying, no, don't go. And uh, in verse 4, the same thing in Tyre. Uh, they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And verse 12, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul said, you're breaking my heart. Why did Paul ignore all of their warnings? It was because God ultimately had called him there, and he was going to submit to what God... He took what other people said extremely seriously. But first and foremost, he was humbled before the calling of his God. And you remember, previous chapter, last week, Matt uh, Stott was speaking to us from Acts chapter 20. Flip back the page, verse 22, Paul says to the church there, now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me, prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. It was hard, and sometimes guidance you know, is difficult, isn't it? Paul's here has got conflicting advice. How do you know what the Lord is saying? Were these prophets wrong to... Well, I don't think that they were wrong to warn him of what was going to happen. Verse 11, Agabus says, look, you're going to get tied up and arrested. And that is what happened. But I think they probably were wrong to then infer from that in verse 12 the warning that therefore he shouldn't actually go on the basis of that. Paul put God's will first. And actually, ultimately, they came around to see that it was God's will that should be done. Verse 14, they wouldn't, he wouldn't be dissuaded and so they all eventually said, the Lord's will be done. And Paul was someone who said, God's will be done. Thy will be done. Even if, verse 31, they'll try and kill me. Even if, verse 33, they're going to arrest me and bound, bind me with chains. And even if, in verse 35, there's a violent mob. And even if, verse 36, there's a crowd that shouts, get rid of him. And sometimes walking humbly with our God involves just getting on our knees and saying that you're God and I'm not and it's your will that will be done, not mine, even if it's hard. This is God's servant who set his face towards Jerusalem despite the knowledge that he would be beaten, 
and mocked and scorned and jeered by the crowd and wrongly accused and arrested and handed over to the authorities and tried on false pretenses, oppressed and afflicted, led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he didn't even open his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly and said, verse 14, not my will, but thy will be done. And so really, Paul wasn't a great example of humility. He was uh, simply somebody who was following the footsteps of the one who was. How can we grow in humility? It's only when we see Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and took the very nature of a servant and wrapped his towel around his waist and washed the stinking feet of his friends and said, I've set you an example you to go and do likewise. And it's only when we realize that the Lord has humbled himself so that we may be lifted up, that we're able to humble ourselves so that those around us may be exalted. Imagine a church like that. Imagine St. Mark's. Imagine a church that would walk humbly before our God, a church that was willing to be obedient to the call of God on our lives, no matter how Uh, hard it was going to be, no matter what the cost might be. And a church that truly grasped the humility of the Savior and was willing to walk in his footsteps. Jonathan Perkin at the weekend away encouraged us and urged us to be a kind church. I'd love to urge us and encourage us to be a humble church. Let's pray. Shall we stand together? And Lord, we know that this does not come easily to us. We actually know that our default setting is pride. And pride is so ugly. And we trick ourselves into justifying our own sinfulness and our own pride. But Lord, I pray, please would you help us to be like Paul and look to Jesus who really was humble. Thank you that there's no condemnation for us, that even though we're we're prideful, you love us and you're working with us. And I pray that you'd help us to look to Jesus and see that he's humbled himself so we might be exalted and thereby emulate his humility in our relationships with those around us, in our disputes as a church family, as a community. Help us to walk humbly with you, our God. Amen.